Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On our program tonight, the Prime Minister continues to look for a peaceful solution to end two weeks of anti-pipeline blockades as more blockades pop up and the pressure mounts from business and political opponents to shut them down. And on a day when Via Rail announces it will lay off a thousand workers because of the blockades, MPs will be here to debate the latest developments. Conservative leadership candidate Peter McKay has been clear on what he would do about the blockades. He'll join me to talk about that and the party leadership race. And we'll try to shed some light on why the powers of Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs have triggered the anti-pipeline protests. And we'll begin tonight with the latest on efforts to bring an end to anti-pipeline protests that have shut down passenger and freight rail service in much of the country. On a day when another rail blockade was set up near Edmonton, Alberta today, protesters blocked the CN Rail line west of the city in solidarity with some Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs who oppose the coastal gasoline pipeline through their territory. And another rail blockade has been started south of Montreal as well. Via Rail announced today it will be temporarily laying off 1,000 workers because of the shutdown in rail access. Back to Edmonton, that blockade, it was removed this afternoon by counter-protesters and that led to some tense moments. Michael James, you can serve. Michael, I've been served. Michael. you have been served, sir. Woo! You can take him or not. Yep. Yeah, yeah. You taking him? No. Move all in jail. Go ahead. Walk in the railroads. There's enough Let cameras around to show they've been served. You can so. serve. Your, your violence is not welcome here. Your violence is not welcome here. Your violence is not welcome here. I'm removing some litter. Your violence is not welcome here. I'm removing some litter. Your violence is not welcome here. Look at all the litter. This is bad. You're it's bad for Canada. You're a superstar. Look at you. I'm not trying. I don't care about that. I care about work. I go to work. Success for the country. Go to work. I'm trying to. You guys are in my way. This is your work. This is your job. You Are think you so? Do you think my job doesn't run on this railroad? Oh, You're nuts. What you guys know, know you can't do. So what are we going to do okay, to replace all the oil and gas? So, some frustration and anger at the blockades, layoffs and supply problems beginning to hit Canadian companies and communities. Canada's premiers are now asking for a conference call with the Prime Minister Thursday to discuss how to end these blockades. And again today in the daily question period, the Prime Minister turned aside demands from the Conservatives to shut the protests down and get rail transport moving. 
After two weeks of inaction and weakness, CN Rail and Via Rail have announced that they are laying off nearly 1,500 workers wow. because of these non-stop blockades across Canada. 1,500 men and women who have to look their families in the eye and tell them that they were laid off. They still have bills to pay, so can the Prime Minister tell them on what day will the blockades come down? extremely hard, doing absolutely everything we can to resolve these situations peacefully. Uh, we know uh, that an overly aggressive approach like the one proposed by uh, the Leader of the Official Opposition uh, will only lead to more challenges down the road. But I do agree with the Leader of the Opposition on one thing. This situation is unacceptable in the fact that it's hitting Canadians so hard, uh, facing layoffs, facing shortages. That's why we are doing everything we can to resolve this peacefully. We will exhaust every efforts uh, to uh, resolve this peacefully. This Prime Minister still refuses to take any kind of action. Now, these radical activists have erected these blockades because they want to shut down our resource centre. Protesters 4,000 kilometres away want to cancel billions of dollars worth of resource projects, one supported by the elected council of the Wet'suwet'en and even the British Columbia NDP government. This is not a way to grow the economy. The Prime Minister is showing incredible weakness in refusing to do anything about this. So once again, can he tell people who are just laid off on what day they can get back to work? Continuing to do everything we can to resolve this situation peacefully. That is what Canadians expect of their government. We understand how difficult this is for so many people who are facing shortages, uh, who are facing layoffs right now, but we know we need to resolve this in a way that won't create more problems uh, months from now uh, over the coming years as well. That is why we are taking every step ne necessarily to resolve this constructively, peacefully and rapidly, Mr. Speaker. Well, let's bring in three members of Parliament now to talk about uh, the latest developments and the pipeline blockades and the government's strategy for trying to uh, uh, have them come down, try to deal with all of this. Uh, we know that ministers want to be granted a, a meeting with the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs who oppose the coastal gasoline project on their territory. Some of them are headed for Ontario and Quebec. And as more layoffs hit the rail industry in this country, lots to discuss. Let's bring in those three members. Pam DeMoff is the Liberal MP for Oakville North Burlington in Ontario and the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Indigenous Services. Todd Doherty is the Conservative MP for Caribou Prince George in Northern BC and his party's critic for transport. And Taylor Backrack is the NDP MP for Skeena-Bulkley Valley. That's in BC as well in the north. And the Wet'suwet'en Territory is in his riding, the territory we've all been talking about. Uh, the last two weeks. Good to see you all. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Uh, Pam Demoff, let me start with you. And I'm, I'm trying to get a sense here of, of how this plan is coming together because we have Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs heading for Ontario and Quebec to meet with some of their supporters, Mohawk supporters, over the next couple of days uh, and the weekend here in this part of the country. And yet we have a letter out from uh, Carolyn Bennett, uh, the minister, uh, saying that she is willing, along with her counterpart in British Columbia, Here's what the letter says. Uh, we both commit to be in Smithers as early as Thursday, February 20th, 2020. We'll be available to meet with any of the hereditary chiefs to discuss these matters of great concern to the Wet'suwet'en Nation. We understand some of the hereditary chiefs may not be available. We commit to coming back again when they are. We look forward to continuing the discussion in person to achieve our shared goal of safe resolution of the current impasse. And I'm reading all that because in, in this context of 
the chiefs seem to be coming this way, the ministers want to go that way, and this letter seems to speak about a fair bit of time that could elapse before the meetings take place or before we move ahead on a solution. What do we make of all of this? Well, I think it shows that uh, what, what's happening is changing by the hour. Um, I think it's a good sign that the chiefs are coming east, and, and as long as, as dialogue is happening, that's always a really good thing. Well, they're coming east, but not to meet the government. They're no, coming east I to know, meet but, but I mean, it's, it's uh, it, you know, you've got conversations that are still happening, and, and between the government and, and Indigenous peoples, um, and, and, you know, quite frankly, this is, this is a, a challenge for everyone in Canada right now. I'm not going to downplay what's happening in terms of layoffs and people who are being impacted by shortages. It's, it's something that the government is seized with and we're, we're, we're continuing the dialogue to try to come to a peaceful resolution for that. I think that's what everyone wants is a peaceful resolution. We, we have differing of opinions between some of the parties on the best way to, to move forward with this, but okay. I think there's agreement that we want a peaceful resolution to what's happening. Mr. Doherty, when you hear me read that part of the letter and, and what we know about uh, the travel plans mm -hmm. of the hereditary chiefs. Um, what does that say to you? Well, it just speaks to exactly what we've been saying, um, that there is no plan. Um, this uh, blockade and this crisis has been going on for two weeks now. The Prime Minister literally just got back into Canada uh, earlier this week, and now all of a sudden you've got uh, the two parties that should be talking crisscrossing the country and and uh, trying to play catch up here. Um, and, you know, I, I have the greatest respect for my colleagues on, on both sides here. Um, you know, the, the, the comment about the dialogue between the First Nations and the government, well, clearly there isn't dialogue going between the First Nations uh, and government. Um, you know, we need the Wet'suwet'en, all of the Wet'suwet'en uh, leaders, hereditary chiefs, uh, the, band, uh, the, the chiefs and elected councils in a room talking with government, talking together first and foremost as well too. This is a Wet'suwet'en issue. Um, but, you know, but, but, but clearly but, the government's but, approach but Peter, here, right? But there, is no, there, there has been no approach. And, and Peter, if you, if you allow me this, today uh, we heard CN announce 500 layoffs. Via Rail announced another further 1,000 layoffs. Mm -hmm. And the CEO in making that announcement said in the 42 years of Via's existence, they have never seen this type of major disruption. Okay, what well, I was going to say that is that is... Uh, unprecedented and what we need to see is a plan and what you're okay. hearing very clearly uh, is that there isn't a plan. Mr. Backrack, what I was going to say is that if, based on my reading of this letter, what I've just read, it, it sounds like uh, part of the plan, if I can frame it that way, is to uh, clearly seed uh, the timing of, the, of this process to the uh, Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs. And I, what, what do you think of this? This suggests we're ready to meet when you want us. Uh, and if there's going to be a delay, uh, we'll meet when we can, whenever you tell us. That suggests that this is open-ended, that there's no deadline from when this might get resolved. Well, Peter, we have to ask ourselves, what's missing from this equation? And what's missing is personal leadership on the part of the Prime Minister. Absolutely. The Wet'suwet'en chiefs asked for him to come and meet with them weeks and weeks ago. Where was he? He wasn't even in the country. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a very serious issue. Canadians are, are beginning to grasp just the, the gravity of this issue with trains stopped across the country and with layoffs. We need the Prime Minister to show personal leadership, go to where the chiefs are, and sit down and start having those conversations. Pam, Pam Demoff, uh, we're hearing this suggestion a lot. Uh, why doesn't the Prime Minister get on a plane and, and go to wherever the chiefs are and say, here I am, let's talk? 
Well, I think that, you know, this is a conversation that's had as part of a team, and I'm, I mean, cabinet team. Um, we do have incredibly capable people as part of that team, and I would say Minister Miller and Minister Bennett are two of the best that uh, you could put in, into this position. If you listen to them speak last night, I don't think any party would disagree with, with, the, uh, with the way that they're moving forward for, with this. The Prime Minister is part of these conversations. Because he hasn't been the face of the meetings does not mean that he's not part of what is happening. Yeah, and I guess, but, but at what point does the, at what point does a prime minister or a national government say, okay, we've now made re repeated outreach to try and set up some sort of meeting, and, and it's fair enough, you're going to meet the supporters at various blockades in Mohawk territories in Ontario and Quebec and speak to them, and we'll see what comes from that. Maybe that's going to be a way forward uh, after those discussions in the next few days. But at what point do you say we've offered a number of meetings, uh, you haven't taken us up on, our on a timetable that works for all of us, and so it's time to talk deadline. Uh, when do we get to that point? Uh, you know, I don't know. I think, days ago. Well, it, you know, it's... This is a very complex problem, and, and offering simple solutions is not the way forward. We've seen what happens when people think they have a simple solution to the problem, and then you end up with something like what happened at Oka or at Everwash. But, but how long does the and, government wait to get a meeting? Well, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, the, 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 the dialogue is continuing. People are continuing to talk, and I, and I mean, I just... I think people need to recognize how complex this this issue is, and just throwing out, um, well, you know, just enforce the rule of law. Politicians don't enforce the rule of law, you know. Police forces do that. So I, I mean, I, it, I think we need to be patient. We need to, but we recognize the problems that Canadians are having. It's it's very real for a lot of people. I just saw a tape earlier today of. Two indigenous people having a conversation. One was a protester and one was a, an oil worker having a conversation about the challenges in both of right. their lives, right? Yeah, I mean, it's open, but that, uh, okay, I'll leave that for what it is. It, it, it does spur that kind of conversation in these kinds of situations. Um, Mr. Doherty, let me, let me hear from you. And one of the things being talked about now is uh, the longer this goes on, uh, people will want to talk about compensation for these right. workers. And what, what should they be owed? Uh, as this goes on. Well, again, listen, you know, our, my colleague from the NDP uh, aptly said this, lack of leadership from, from Prime Minister Trudeau. Um, we are now seeing uh, losses uh, in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And let's be very clear that just because the blockades are removed tomorrow, if that takes place, um, th the recovery from this is going to be months and months and months. The damage has been done not only locally, nationally, but internationally. We have 19 ships off the port of Prince Rupert that are waiting for product, 85 ships uh, off the port of Vancouver. We have goods and services that ha are, are, have not been able to make it to their final destination. We have producers mm -hmm. that are feeling the pinch, but, and we have job losses that are going on. In terms so of, do you, do you in expect terms those of compensation, yeah. in terms of compensation, it is the, the, the abject failure of the Prime Minister as to why we are where we are today. And I do believe that the government is, is fully responsible for some form of compensation for those losses. Okay, Mr. Backrack, can I hear you on, on where the NDP is on, on the notion of a... Uh, I mean, how long would you suggest the government wait if, if they continue to not be able to get a meeting 
uh, to at least begin this conversation with, the, with some of the hereditary chiefs before the government should be in a, and could be in a position to say, okay, look, we've tried. Now we have to go to the next phase and these blockades have to come down. Well, as I said before, what they haven't tried is making uh, the Prime Minister demonstrate some personal leadership and meet with the chiefs directly. What we do know is that, is that the use of police force risks making this situation even worse. We saw that uh, in the wake of the arrests that happened uh, just weeks ago. And at this point, what we need is we need for the Prime Minister to recognize the severity of this situation, to get on an airplane, and to sit down with the chiefs and talk about how we resolve this dispute as quickly as possible. And the country's counting on him to do that. I, I think it's long overdue. And as this, uh, just a final word from you on this idea of uh, this notion of compensation for people who are now going to be facing layoff, small businesses, uh, we're going to hear coming up, uh, are facing some real tests. I have a guest that's going to tell us that some of his members uh, are uh, going to have trouble making payroll if this goes on much longer. Sure, the economic costs of this are huge. The Port of Prince Rupert is, is in the riding I represent. The railroad goes, goes right through it. But at this point, Peter, the focus has to be on resolving the dispute peacefully. This is a very divisive issue in our communities. We need to be using words that, that don't divide things further, that don't inflame the tensions that already exist. And we need cooler heads to prevail. We need the Prime Minister to be personally involved. Okay, uh, I thank you all for your time tonight, and uh, we'll chat again. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. Well, the man considered by many to be the front-runner for the Conservative Party leadership has also weighed in on the anti-pipeline protests. Peter McKay's called the protesters a small gang of professional protesters and thugs, vowing that as Prime Minister, he would use every lever available to ensure these kinds of blockades don't happen again. Peter McKay joins me now from Toronto. Mr. McKay, uh, good to see you again, and thanks for taking time to speak with me. My pleasure, Peter. Thank I, you. I want to get your views to start off here on the major news of the day, the ongoing news in this country, and that's the continuing anti-pipeline protests and blockades. What would you be doing differently as Prime Minister? Well, look, it can't go on. We are, uh, we are seeing right now uh, our rail lines paralyzed. It's affecting thousands of Canadians. It's affecting critical merchandise that has to get to, uh, to market. It's affecting things like propane, medicine. And it's affecting people's ability to travel. And so what I would do differently is I would expect the police to do their job. And uh, essentially that is to clear the tracks to make sure that people, merchandise and services are moving. What does that mean? You'd expect the police to do their job. Could you order the police to do their job? Well, it's not about ordering them. It's about uh, letting them know that they should act within their jurisdiction. And as they have in other situations, as they have when people are breaking the law, which I would suggest is what's happening here in impeding transportation, in standing in the way of, uh, of people's movements, there are rights at stake here, and the rights are of every working Canadian who has the ability to move across this country. And that is being impeded by individuals who are acting against the law. And so the expectation should be and is that Canadians will have their police intervene. Right, I, I guess, how, how do you turn that? We, we've heard Liberal ministers say repeatedly here they don't have the authority to order the RCMP to take down these blockades. You're a former Minister of Justice and Attorney General. Do you agree with that position? No, I don't. I, I think that there is a, an underlying message here that uh, they don't want the police to do their job. They want further negotiation and restraint. And I think that that time has well passed now. We're two weeks into this. It's a crisis. It's causing a lot of harm to our economy. It's, uh, it's costing a lot of jobs. I heard that Via Rail may be laying off a 1,000 people. Mm -hmm. 
There are other companies who are similarly looking at making decisions and possibly moving jobs and supply chains out of our country. And so the impact is real. The police are acting within their mandate to remove individuals who are impeding travel. So uh, what you're saying, if I'm hearing you correctly, say you, you, you're not, you wouldn't be in a position as prime minister or, or have a cabinet minister tell the RCMP to do it, but you would be communicating you want it done as opposed to communicating you want a peaceful resolution. That's correct. I, I think it's, uh, it's not about ordering the police to do anything. It's about signaling clearly that you expect them to do their job. Okay. Uh, you refer to these protesters as a small gang of professional protesters and thugs. Uh, are you suggesting that the concerns being expressed by the hereditary chiefs and the people who support them are not legitimate? Not at all. Uh, the Wet'suwet'en people have uh, spoken and in fact the majority speaking through their elected band members are saying that they are in favor of a pipeline. Uh, the hereditary chiefs uh, I would compare in some fashion to hereditary lords in the House of, uh, uh, House of Lords in the UK. Th these are not elected representatives or vo voices of that band. And what we are seeing in many of these blockades, in fact, are, are not even Aboriginal people or Indigenous people. They're individuals who mistakenly believe that they are standing up for the rights of these bands, who I have just explained are quite pro-pipeline in this instance. And so there is a, a tremendous misrepresentation that this is an Aboriginal protest uh, in many ways. It, it is not. The individuals at those locations blocking the movement of goods and services in many cases are not First Nations people. But, th but these hereditary chiefs, as, as you know, I think, these hereditary chiefs say that their, their system of governance predates the Indian Act. It, it in fact, is the way uh, they have traditionally made decisions. Uh, and these, so there's this intersection of, of uh, two governance issues, I guess, and the, the question becomes which one takes priority? Well, Peter, I think there is one law for all Canadians. That's what I believe. Okay, uh, one last question on this. This government has set an expectation for reconciliation with Indigenous people that includes more say in whether or how major energy projects go ahead, an expectation that there's to be this new relationship between federal governments and Indigenous peoples. Uh, and it, it seems to me that's part of why this is so problematic for the federal government. So how much of a priority would reconciliation be under your leadership? Well, just to go back to the first part of that, uh, I think that nobody can now believe that uh, the efforts of this government have been successful. In fact, I think they've been an abject failure. All evidence to the contrary in terms of having moved forward with reconciliation. We have now a flashpoint where we are seeing the country paralyzed in many ways in terms of their ability to, to move forward on, uh, on transportation issues or in fact on some of these issues that stem from reconciliation efforts. A government that I would lead, a government that I would engage in, uh, in these discussions would not be held hostage and would not be predicated on, uh, on uh, removing uh, projects from lands that in fact uh, the Aboriginal people who were elected in those lands are supporting. So we're, we're, we're sort of parsing a number of different issues here, right. but I come back to the fact that no one is above the law and no one should be able to hold the government or the people of Canada hostage because of demands that uh, are yet to be settled and yet to be reconciled. So those discussions can certainly continue, but uh, not with a gun to the head of the Canadian government and the Canadian people. All right, uh, let's talk now about your quest to be a Conservative leader. Are you surprised at how so few prominent Conservatives want that job? Well, it's, uh, 
you say prominent conservatives. There are members of the of the party who who are running, um, and there are yeah. And I don't de I don't mean to d diminish there, but I mean no, so no. well. Let me let me phrase it another way. How many well known? Uh, conservatives that, that people have come to know over the years don't seem interested in uh, going after this job? Well, I would look at it differently. I think some of the names, uh, certainly Ron Ambrose, John Baird, others who have uh, uh, dipped their toe in the water initially have decided for personal reasons, reasons which I can understand, where they're in the private sector or they were in politics for a significant period of time, uh, have simply decided uh, that this is not uh, the time to do it. I went through that process and, and understand quite personally what it means. There's family considerations, financial considerations. Um, simply having returned to the private sector, it, it is, a, it is a, a big leap to go back to politics. And so I, I think for each individual, it's a, it's a very considered and, uh, and thoughtful decision that has to be made based on a whole number of factors. You and the other candidates who uh, have thrown their hats in the ring here, uh, I've talked about the need to modernize the Conservative Party to, to win the voters the party didn't get last time. What, what does modernize mean to you? Well, modernize to me uh, means, quite frankly, having a, a thoughtful and uh, uh, detailed serious plan to address climate change and issues around the environment. It means accepting that uh, Canadian society has evolved. I'm pro-choice. I believe that uh, marriage is marriage and we need to accept people. And I think a modern Conservative Party in its policies, but in, in every fashion, has to reflect that uh, modernity. And so I believe that uh, bringing forward policies that, yes, promote fiscal responsibility, promote rule of law, promote a strong military, promote Canada's role in the world, but also is more moderate and inclusive uh, is the type of party that I would want to lead. Does a climate change plan, a credible climate change plan, in your view, need to include a carbon tax? No, it doesn't. I, I think a, a carbon tax, firstly, doesn't work. It's uh, simply a license to pollute. And it is an unfair tax. It, it is not applied evenly. People in rural Canada don't have the options for transportation or heating their homes that people in a, in a city like Toronto or Montreal or Vancouver might have. And so I think it's uh, putting emphasis on technology, finding real solutions. A carbon tax doesn't lower emissions. Right. So, uh, so was there, in your view, was there too much emphasis on no carbon tax in the last campaign and not enough emphasis on uh, what Conservatives would do differently? Peter, I think that's, that's it. I think you've hit the, the nail on the head. I, I think it's not just on environmental issues and social issues. It's putting more emphasis on how we would do it differently and putting those ideas front and center, putting, putting policies in the window that I believe Canadians will find attractive as an alternative. We have now five years of Liberal government to, to compare to. It's very easy to tear down what the Prime Minister has done and the, and the way that he has governed. But I think people are much more in tune and, and want to hear how a Conservative government would do it differently and what a Conservative leader would actually present as the alternative. And that's what I'm hoping to do in the course of this leadership campaign and beyond. Uh, candidate Aaron O'Toole uh, says you would pull the Conservative Party closer to the Liberals. He, he, he wants to paint himself as the true blue Tory and it seems to me uh, paint you as the red Tory. Are you comfortable with that assessment? Peter, let me be clear. Uh, I'm the co-founder of the Conservative Party with Stephen Harper. I uh, served in his government. I was Justice Minister, Foreign Minister, Minister of National Defense. I'm a Canadian Conservative. And I have been my entire life. I, I don't think these labels, quite frankly, uh, really apply anymore. I don't think uh, many Canadians even understand what they mean. But look at my record, whether it be as Justice Minister on mandatory minimum penalties, whether it is 
Minister of National Defense and, and re-equipping and supporting our forces. I'm, I'm proud of the time that I spent in, uh, in government, but uh, I'm not going to be labeled or put in a corner by anyone. And uh, I'm proud of, of my conservative credentials, and I think that they stack up well against anybody in this race. All right, Peter McKay, uh, good to talk to you. I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk again as the race continues, but appreciate your time tonight. Thanks a lot, Peter. Good to speak to you as well. Well, the national organization uh, representing 110,000 small and medium-sized business owners in this country has now added its voice to the growing chorus from the business community in this country, calling on the Prime Minister to bring the blockades to an end. Dan Kelly is the president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and he joins me now in our studios. Good to see you, Dan Good Kelly. Good to uh, We usually talk from Toronto, where you're headquartered, but here you are today. Good to have you with me. Uh, you've written this open letter to the Prime Minister to tell him about the concerns your members are having about these blockades as they continue. Uh, let's start there. What effect sure. are they having on your members? What are you hearing? Well, in the first couple of days, nobody was uh, was was going crazy as a result of the changes, and you know we want to make sure that there's space for uh, for, for for debate and, and action. But now, as this drags on a couple of weeks, we're starting to hear big time from small and medium-sized companies saying that they are running out of supply, they're uh, running the risk of missing contracts. Uh, we had a, a message from a Quebec member who's, who's waiting for, on a shipment of, of raw materials from Taiwan that's stuck in the, in the, on the rails. Mm -hmm. uh, she said that she's about to miss a $100,000 order uh, and questions whether she'll have her, her U.S. customer actually purchase from her again if she misses it. So these are real impacts that are having small and medium, on, on, having a, a, a huge, huge effect on small and medium-sized companies. And when you, talk, when, you when you talk about... Um you know, the first couple of days, yeah. people see this as a disruption that, sure. you know, okay, let's let's see where it goes. It goes on to two weeks. And how much of the, uh, is the concern uh, around the fact that there doesn't, it seems to be open-ended. No, nobody can say, okay, next Tuesday it ends, so plan accordingly. Uh, how much of that is the issue? Well, it's, it, this is, that's just it. It's like a strike or any kind of other disruption that, that happens. You can kind of bite your teeth and get through it for a, for a couple of days. After a while, though, it starts to have a material impact on your year. Uh, the companies that I'm hearing from are themselves uh, a couple of weeks away from layoffs. Uh, lots and lots of companies telling us mm -hmm. they have supplies for the next week or so, but after that, it's anyone's guess, it starts to have an impact on, on, their, on even the future of some of these companies. I spoke to an Alberta manufacturer who's waiting on steel and says that he's about a, a couple of weeks away from hundreds of layoffs in this medium-sized company. These are, these are serious effects on the economy, uh, and the lack of certainty around this is, is a worry. The other thing, of course, that's on the mind of a lot of small business owners is because this is going on, how much more of this can we expect to see happen in the future mm. if this is viewed as this a... This whole area of you know, uh, certainty around Canada as a place to do business. This is just it, and we're starting to see signs that, uh, and, and I think send the message to international suppliers, that Canada isn't a particularly, uh, you, ca you can't have confidence in some cases uh, in your Canadian supplier. And what a damaging uh, reputation that can be on the small business that is out there with the, our new trade agreements, trying to build customer, a customer base in Europe or, or in, in the United in States. In many cases with uh, the, the, the pledged and, and uh, spoken support, sometimes financial support of the federal government. You got Go it. out there and find foreign markets. Well, it's affecting, it's, it's affecting our brand. Uh, as a country and and I think if more and more groups turn to this kind of thing as a way of resolving uh, the fact that they don't feel like the government is really listening to them or taking them seriously 
then I, you know, then then this can affect the future of uh, of Canada, the future of our Canadian economy. That's very very troubling. What do you want from the prime minister? Well, look, I, the prime minister is known to have uh, very strong relationship building skills. Uh, I'm really happy that he has cut short his international trip uh, and is now attending uh, to this. Uh, but I think that this needs uh, his personal touch to try to broker uh, the situation and, and, and fix the problem. I, I am under no illusions that this is going to be easy, uh, but, uh, but this, is, this, is, this is why we need national leaders uh, to take these kinds of things seriously. So where are you? Because the, the debate's now around, you know, uh, send the police in. That's mm -hmm. where we're, we're quickly getting yeah. to that. Send the police in and then the blockades. Like, yeah. take these things down. And move on. Is that the solution, or, or look? There's, there's maybe, a, maybe that's not up to you. There, we're, we're choosing the least worst option right now, but I, I think that there's got to be a, a, an attempt on the part of the prime minister personally to try to address this by meeting with the leadership and talking to them. I know that there are challenges, and 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 there, it takes two parties to tango here. Uh, but the relationship-building skills that uh, that he's used at the international level need to be applied at the domestic level do you want him very quickly. Otherwise, I think we do need to start exploring options like having uh, police intervention because the the economy of Canada just can't be put in jeopardy in this way. That that raises the the prospect then, and, and it's, it, it becomes this circular concern, right? So you so you send the police in and the blockade, you can expect more blockades. Well, the, the, and, and that worsens the problem for your members. It, it does, but if but the other way is not helping us out either. I think, that, uh, look, every single month I get a small business owner who's frustrated with the government telling us, telling me at CFIB, leading 110,000 members, that I should organize a campaign where every small business stops, stops collecting GST or HST or refuses to pay their taxes to send a message to government. How far are we going to go as Canadians where we, where we tolerate uh, uh, breaking the law? Uh, and, and I never, you know, I, I tell those business owners that if they lose the trust of the rest of Canadians, uh, that's going to have more negative impact on, uh, on them than they, than they realize. But if groups start seeing this as an avenue to, to success, to get their, their cause on, in, on the front page of the paper, um, we're in serious trouble, and that's that's even without the police intervening. That's what's happening right now. Do you, your, your letter also talks about a, a role here for the Canada Revenue Agency. What, yeah. What What are you saying? Well, very soon we need to start thinking about the the short and medium term impacts that this is having on on small business. One of the first thing governments can do is, of course, urge all of the agencies to be lenient with businesses that are directly affected by this. If you're if you're the future of your business is right now in light, you know, is is affected, yeah. you're not worrying about your remittance of your GST, Coming HST. Coming up on tax time and This so is on, just yeah. it. So we've got to have government uh, be more lenient on those kinds of things. And they've typically done that in the past where we've had these big events. Uh, secondly, of course, uh, I think there needs to be some thought as to whether or not some of the businesses that are most severely affected are going to have some form of compensation uh, to, uh, to address this. And, and we're, we're coming up to that. Again, businesses try to bide their time to, to wait these things out. But we're kind of at that point now where this is going to result in layoffs uh, and, and in some cases businesses questioning whether or not they continue. And, and, and for and we'll finish on this because it's important mm -hmm. for people to understand and, and probably do, but the, the difference between a smaller, medium-sized business and some of the big corporations that often can have, for want of a, you know, can, a better description, can have a float to carry them through these difficult times. Not so much with small businesses. No, not at all. I mean, the small firms, typically with 50 or fewer employees, uh, are, are operating really on their week's return. They don't have usually big reserve funds to, to buy it out. They don't have international departments that can supplement and help out or, or lending agencies that they can call on, on a whim. 
Uh, Canadian banks need, of course, to be lenient in terms of some of the payments that may be mis missed if this, this, this mm -hmm. goes on any longer. Um, but small firms don't have the resources to buy this out, and, and the future of some of these companies uh, and the future for their employees is in jeopardy if we don't get this solved. All right, Dan Kelly, thanks for your perspective. Appreciate your time today. Anytime. Well, let's take a little time tonight to drill down on why these anti-pipeline blockades have started. They are in support of some hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation in British Columbia who've been fighting the pipeline through their territory, even though elected Wet'suwet'en band councils on the same territory have approved the project. So that's raised many questions about the division of powers and who speaks for the First Nations people. And it's become ammunition, too, for non-Indigenous politicians on all sides of the crisis. In a moment, we'll explore uh, that First Nations power dynamic, but first... A little background on how we got here. Canada's coastal gas link liquid natural gas pipeline runs 670 kilometers across British Columbia from Dawson Creek to a processing plant in Kitimat on the northern BC coast. The route cuts right through the center of unceded Wet'suwet'en territory. The $6.6 billion project is funded by five separate oil producers, Shell, Petronas, PetroChina, Mitsubishi Corporation, and Korea Gas Corporation, with each producer expected to provide its own natural gas supply for processing. The project has been stalled since blockades popped up, blocking construction on Wet'suwet'en lands. On December 31st, the British Columbia Supreme Court granted Coastal GasLink an injunction, allowing the removal of any blockades along the construction route. The Wet'suwet'en First Nation countered the next day by serving Coastal GasLink with an eviction notice for trespassing. At the end of January, Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs agreed to a week of talks with the province to de-escalate the situation. The talks broke down after only two days. On February 6th, the RCMP raided the first of several camps on Wet'suwet'en territory, arresting a number of protesters and giving rise to rail blockades in other parts of Canada. Wet'suwet'en chiefs say they will not negotiate with governments until the RCMP leave the territory. So let's get some clarity if we can now on the conflict over the coastal gas link pipeline and the decision-making process in the Wet'suwet'en First Nation. Mary Ellen Trapel lafons the director of UBC's Indian Residential School History and Dialogue Centre. She's a law professor and a former provincial court judge. We've reached her in Victoria. Uh, Mary Ellen Trapel lafons great to see you again. Thanks for making time for us today. It's great to be with you again. Can I start by getting your perspective on the federal government's handling of this conflict so far, uh, the blockades, the, uh, the rest of it? What do you think of what you've seen here? Well, I think like a lot of others, um, I saw that this is going to be coming for some time. Um, I think in the first Trudeau government, there was a lot of talk and not a lot of action, and they didn't make progress, and it's been brewing for some time, particularly for the Wet'suwet'en. And I think that um, they've been fairly absent from the issue. I know they've been engaging and saying they're talking. I think the time for talking is very important for deeper dialogue, but it's actually a time for change. And particularly for Wet'suwet'en, you know, making some movement on their title claim and their title issues is long overdue. Okay, so uh, how do you think that unfolds? Everybody's now talking timelines and deadlines and the need to move quickly. 
Uh, how do you think it has to unfold? Well, I think that they need to, I, I mean, I am in agreement that this is an issue about leadership as well. And the Wet'suwet'en, both the hereditary chiefs and the elected chiefs uh, in the region, you know, they feel very much like their issues have been dealt with for a long time. And I think it's fair to say that they haven't been. Um, I think we need some senior leadership in the government of Canada and British Columbia. I know they have ministers and others opening dialogues, but I do think the prime minister and premier are going to have to make themselves available to personally give that kind of goodwill and also bring a resolution to, the, to at least some of the title issues. I mean, we need to recognize the Wet'suwet'en title. Uh, the hereditary chiefs need to have a key role in deciding how to protect and support the lands. And that needs progress. And, you know, the Delgamook decision was a long time ago. It's overdue. So I'm hoping to see some movement there for them. In terms of all of the other issues across Canada, you know, uh, many, many First Nations people are very disappointed that things haven't progressed. And there's a lot of simmering, outstanding matters and claims, especially on the resource extraction side. Mm. And I, you know, I do agree with Grand Chief Stuart Phillip. It's probably going to be a pretty long, hot summer unless they make some definitive progress quickly. Okay, let, let's, I want to drill down if I can on, on you, you talked about title and you talked about uh, the different, you know, who's involved in the decision-making process. And I think for ma many Canadians trying to follow this conflict, it's now come down to one sort of central question in a lot of ways. How come some of the hereditary chiefs insist that they have greater power to block the pipeline than the elected band councils in the same First Nation who support the pipeline? Uh, help us with that. Well, first of all, the Indian Act bans were created by the federal government and that governance structure was imposed. However, after you know, more than 100 years, that has been the vehicle through which money comes and programs and so forth. It's never been the choice. It wasn't the government that the First Nations picked and the Wet'suwet'en or Gitsan or others. They didn't pick that. Um, that was imposed. But anything that's imposed for 100 plus years becomes normalized. Um, and business often deals with the Indian Act bans and does impact benefit agreements. The actual nation, in this case, the Wet'suwet'en nation, that's the hereditary leadership structure. It's their political system that has been in place forever. It survived residential school process. It survived the imposition of the Indian Act. And that's a very significant because it more reflects their nation as a broader people who experience being chopped up into these individual bands and also having their lands not recognized. So the hereditary leaders have a significant role for the entire territory. But I think one of the key things is for people to stop saying, well, you have the elected chiefs, you have the hereditary chiefs. You have to create a bit of space for elected and hereditary chiefs being supported in a system that affirms their existence and identity to pick their Indigenous governing body to mandate it and to go forward. And because the federal government has been so slow for so long to make progress, you know, these, they're, they're not divisions so much as they're a normal process of working out these issues. So instead of rushing in and saying, work with this person, work with that person, everybody knows if you do a business deal with an Indian Act band, it's fine to do that, but you still have that traditional leadership structure that you have to work with. All right. So, um, what, what, like in terms of next step, is, is this, I mean, the federal government, I think you're suggesting, has a role to play here, but is this really 
in, in, in the sort of short time frame I think people are looking at, and maybe it's going to need a much longer time frame, but this project's sort of waiting to get done. There's a dispute over whether it, it, it has proper approvals or not. There's lots to talk about here. So in, in, in that short term, is this something that can be resolved by the Wet'suwet'en nation itself? Uh, yeah, uh, they, they, they need some space to do that. But in the meantime, there are, there are a lot of things that can be done. I mean, this is a clear message to the federal government that it's not just a British Columbia provincial issue. It's a national issue. You know, again, I think the attentions come back to Trudeau's speech from February 14th, 2018, where he promised really significant path-breaking change to allow there to be space for First Nations to work this out, work their governing structures out without the, you know, jackboot of colonialism on their neck, and to also get some support in, in terms of their resources and their title. And so, you know, we need some federal movement on that. And it has to be more than just a speech in the House of Commons. We need recognition legislation. We need UN declaration legislation. We need some real policy shifts and we need some leadership. And for the Wet'suwet'en, I'm not speaking for them, but it's so obvious that they need their title affirmed and recognized. And they need, you know, I, I need to be able to go to the Hazleton Land Registry, look it up and see they actually have some right. Wet'suwet'en title. So, so does that suggest shelving this Coastal Link gas line pi pipeline project till that gets uh, fixed? I think the challenge is that the Coastal Gas Link pipeline, you know, it, it came from another era, if you like. And we're, we're shifting into a very different paradigm and era where you can't just like railroad. And then, of course, the injunction and using the police and so forth, these are just tactics that are just not going to be tolerated anymore. So it's not, I'm not in a position to say what should be shelved. I do think we need to pause. I do think it's fair to talk about whether there's alternative routes. I do think it's fair to talk about whether or not you can get, and it's not social license, that's too narrow of a concept, whether or not you can get agreement and resolution. And I'm a person that believes firmly that you can get agreement and resolution, but it depends who you send and what they go with. All right. And if they're just if they're just talking to them, like, let's just keep talking. I mean, for First Nations in Canada, people have been talking to them about their land problems for 150 years. It wasn't until they went to court and started suing people that Canada was even willing to have a serious conversation. And they've been like, you know, they've been ragging the puck for years and years. Okay, let, let's finish on this uh, in a, a slight uh, diversion to another topic, but clearly related. A number of organizations in BC have asked the chairperson uh, for the Civilian Review Commission of the RCMP there to investigate the actions of uh, the Mounties on Wet'suwet'en territory, alleging the force overstepped the injunction from the BC Supreme Court. Uh, that answer has been uh, relayed to the organizations. We'll, we expect to hear it tomorrow at a news conference in British Columbia. You'll be part of that. Can, can you give us some idea of what we should expect to hear about the RCMP's actions here? Well, I'm hoping to hear something uh, that the RCMP takes it seriously. I think we've seen often that these injunctions are granted, like narrow injunction, like, for instance, for access to the, you know, Morris Forest Service Road in the case of Coastal Gas Link, and that then you end up having RCMP overhead and coming out of the bushes, and they're everywhere. And so the issue about occupying um, this kind of security state, when you have an injunction, it's, it's a delicate issue. And I think you're going to hear tomorrow that it's serious and We've seen this with a lot of injunctions, even the injunction that the Speaker of the B.C. Legislature got. If you read it closely, it says 
you know, the protesters can't go anywhere where a minister habitually goes. What, the ministers in Starbucks, they can't go there? I mean, you have to really be careful about when you bring police action in, and it's Indigenous territory in particular, you can't be overly broad. And I think that the complaint was an important one. And I hope the, you know, the RCMP takes it very seriously. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be exploring that further tomorrow. All right. Uh, Mary Ellen Terpelov, always uh, good to get your perspective. Thanks so much uh, for talking to us again today. And we'll be in touch. Thank you. You have a good day. Well, while many Canadians are focused on the blockades and the standoff over the coastal gasoline pipeline in northern B.C., two new public opinion polls are showing public support is dropping for another project the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, as we learn more about its potential cost to the taxpayer. Today, opposition MPs joined environmental groups in Ottawa to release the results of one of those surveys conducted after the federal government announced that the cost of expanding the pipeline has jumped from $7.4 billion to $12.6 billion. And new information is raising more questions about the economic viability of the government-owned pipeline. We'll hear from the politicians in a few moments, but first... CPAC's Martin Stringer spoke with a representative of the environmental group which sponsored the latest Nanos public opinion survey. I guess the first question is, um, you've done a, a poll and released this poll which show, seems to show that a large number of Canadians are opposed to further paying money out for the pipeline. What, what exactly does it show? Well, it shows that an overwhelming majority of Canadians don't support spending more than $12 billion of public dollars, public taxpayer money, on the Trans Mountain Pipeline. So we have passed a tipping point, really, now that we know that the cost of this pipeline, the price tag is $12.6 billion. That has crossed over a threshold that Canadians are really uncomfortable about that level of public spending and that level of public money going to fund an oil tanker and pipeline expansion. What about, though, I mean, the same poll seems to su suggest that a fair number of Canadians, um, almost half Canadians, would be supportive of the pipeline if it doesn't cost money. And the government's argument has always been, we're going to recoup the money. Mm. Well, I think there are real questions around the viability and the profitability argument here. Um, we have been, you know, the Minister of Finance has been really at pains to, to claim commercial viability here. But... There are all kinds of questions really that still stand there. So one thing that we have discovered recently is that the tolls that Trans Mountain is actually charging to its shippers are not covering the higher construction costs that we have just learned. Um, so that is really a windfall to be, you know, to the oil majors of this country from taxpayers, um, you know, that really rightfully should have been passed on to those oil companies. And it really calls into question that argument that this is happening on a commercial basis. What what company would not take the opportunity to pass on those costs to its to its customers? How much of the cost then could be recouped if the company, the management company for Trans Mountain, imposed higher tolls on the oil companies that are using its mm -hmm. existing pipeline? Well, unfortunately, there's a line in the contract between Trans Mountain and its customers uh, that breaks those ability to pass those toll, those costs on into two categories. One is called capped and one is called uncapped costs. And it is the majority, around 75% of costs, that it is not able to pass on to its shippers. So we can see tolls rising to try and recoup some of those costs, but only about a quarter of those higher construction costs are, are able by contract to be passed on to the shippers. You know and you've heard the ultimate discussion here politically is that there is also uh, a contingent which says that even if the government might take a bit of a loss in investing and building this pipeline, even if the government might find it difficult to, to buy an eventual, to find an eventual buyer, that it, it is for a good cause and it is economically for a good cause because it would allow Albertans to sell their oil or to get it to Tidewater and sell it at a higher price. 
I think, I mean, there's too much writing on this project. This project is trying to solve too many problems here, you know, and we're trying to solve, you know, build our future with, with yesterday's model. And I think that's what this project is, is really all about. This is false hope for Albertans, you know. This is not going to create good, long-lasting, well-paying, sustainable jobs in Alberta. It is going to create a small number of jobs in construction. It is not, you know, the long-term solution that we need. And we know Canadians are concerned about climate change. Canadians are ready for a transition to clean energy. And we could be saving billions of dollars rather than locking it into higher emissions, locking us into a white elephant. We could be saving those dollars and giving them right now to the folks who are, are hurting in Western Canada to the clean energy transition that we need and that we know that Canadians are ready for. Okay, last question, and it was asked here, because there is another poll, poll that's just come out, an Angus Reid poll, which seems to suggest that Canadians are still evenly split 50-50 on support for the project. Is it all in how you ask the question? Is it all in pointing out how much it might cost? And Because your questions were whether it, Canadians should spend more than $12.6 billion, or whether Canadians, how do you support it if it doesn't cost us anything? Is, is that the difference in the polling? Yeah, I mean, there's another Angus Reid poll out a couple of weeks ago that showed um, that support, you know, that, that opposition was hardening. We had reached a low point where of, of uh, you know, that support had, um, had, had kind of plateaued and we were starting to get less support as things progressed. So, you know, yes, polls can show different things all the time. I think this is interesting in that it's the first one that really highlights to people that it is taxpayers' dollars being spent and it highlights to people that, that it's um, Canada taking on debt to make this project happen. So that is something that Canadians didn't necessarily know so much about when you um, when you put that in front of them, they're really uncomfortable about what that means for, for their pocketbooks. Okay, Ms. Woodsworth, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you. That was CPAC's Martin Stringer speaking with a representative of the environmental group Dogwood, BC. Opposition MPs at today's press conference argued that the rising costs and the drop in public support for the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion mean that it no longer makes sense for the federal government to continue funding the project. Here's what they had to say, followed by the Prime Minister at question period. This new poll that shows an overwhelming majority of Canadians do not want our federal government borrowing $12.6 billion to keep Trudeau's pipe dream afloat, you know, it shows the momentum behind this. And it also demonstrates that Trans Mountain is a sinking ship. There is no way that in a private, uh, in a free market situation, anyone is going to buy this pipeline other than if the government of Canada provides it at, at a price that uh, is essentially non-commercial. We're not going to get out of this based on someone coming along and buying the pipeline. That's not going to happen in the real world. So we're going to be making a choice that's always going to be one of policy and priority. Do Canadians want to see billions of dollars of our money spent on what will be a stranded asset in a world that's committed to climate action, people aren't going to buy this pipeline. Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion is in the national interest. Getting our resources to markets other than the United States uh, is, uh, an, uh, is a positive thing for our economy, positive thing for workers across the country and indeed consumers and taxpayers across the country as well. And it is also going to be helpful for our transition and for our fight against climate change as all the profits from uh, the extremely uh, profitable pipeline that will be built uh, will be poured into the clean energy transition and invested in green solutions. That is how to manage the path forward responsibly for Canadians. 
And that's all for another edition of Primetime Politics here on CPAC, the Cable Public Affairs Channel. I'm Peter Van Dusen. Thanks for watching. I'll see you next time.